Morning, Living Streams. How you guys doing? How many of you guys were here for fam night? Oh, man. You would know if you were. <laughs> it was so good. It really was. And I don't know if it was the barbecue, which, I mean, that doesn't hurt. Um, I don't know if this is the barbecue or the new gym, but it was just a great night. And uh, as a team, we were talking about it a little bit, and um, it wasn't just that we had great worship and and the, the meal was great and all of that, but it really felt like something shifted spiritually for us. I don't know how else to say it. Uh, we finished on Wednesday night, and I was like, I think something's different. And uh, Nathan texted me on the on the drive back that night, and he was like, I think something shifted for us. And we're always, I mean, in the season with Living Streams, we're really hungry to find out where the current of the Spirit is 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 flowing, right? We're really trying to go, okay, God, what are you doing right now, and how can we get there? Uh, our job is not to create momentum that wasn't there. Our job is not to create a move of the Spirit. That is the Spirit's job. Uh, but when we feel it moving, our job is to get into that current. And Wednesday kind of felt like that. It felt like a really special night. Um, and somebody was talking to me that night. We were talking about all the stuff that was happening here at our church. And, um, and he was asking me about the Image Conference, which is the conference that we have, the mental health conference we have coming up October 15th. And um, he said, I jumped on the website, and I was trying to figure out who were the speakers for this thing. And I said, this is not that kind of conference. This is not the kind of conference where you come and hear famous people, and then you go home and just kind of go back to, back to life. Uh, this is a place where we're going to have a conversation about mental health. And some of you in this room have faced some really hard challenges when it comes to mental health. Totally get that. Um, I, I've gone through seasons of depression and anxiety myself, even after I was a Christian. Um, then some of you are just kind of maybe low-level anxiety going on. Really, our desire with this conference is to engage in society's pain, right? It's one of our, one of our phrases at Living Streams. But to engage in this pain in society and to say, okay, uh, what's going on? How can the church speak into it? What can we do practically uh, to really speak into mental health? So if you're dealing with that, if you would like to connect more, we're going to have a lot of professionals that are here in the valley, people that come to our church, um, people that are connected with us. It's going to be really awesome. So on the events page of our website, make sure and sign up. The Image Conference is October 15th. It's a Saturday. It's all day. Um, and it really is going to be worth your time, especially if you're in that, that realm of really needing to hear more about it. So with that being said, let's dive in. So we are in our Philippians series, uh, Philippians uh, we're in Philippians chapter 2, uh, and if you guys want to turn with me there, uh, Philippians 2, starting in verse 14, um, and we've been in uh, this, this series not trying to force Philippians into this idea that it's a mental health book. That's not what Philippians is. What Philippians is, is a book of mental health, good mental health on display through the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul is sitting in prison. Every circumstance in his life is terrible. Uh, he's sitting in prison. He's chained to somebody. We talked about how difficult that season must have been for him. And yet, this is the most joyful book in the Bible. Paul says the word joy 14 times in this short letter. And he's writing this letter to uh, the Philippian church whom he loves. Um, if you missed kind of the first few uh, sermons in our series, go back and listen to that. We talk about the, the backstory of this. But Paul loves this church. He loves the people in that church. And he's trying to impart something to them that he thinks that they need to have joy in their circumstance. Because Paul's circumstance was not great. 
Paul's circumstance was not good. And I think we would, we would afford him a little bit of grace if he was like, you know what, Philippian church, I'd write you a letter, but I'm having a really hard day, you know. I'm chained to this person. I just have, I've been in a really bad season of life. None of us would fault Paul for that, right? But Paul, in the midst of all of that, is encouraging people whose circumstances are not as scary as his. And he's going, look, you got to know that what I'm going through is serving to push forward the gospel. You got to know that what I'm going through is only going to serve for good in the end. And as we sit under Paul, in Corinthians, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. So we as a church, we're going to sit under the teachings of Paul and we're going to go, okay, Paul, whatever you've got, we want. Whatever that joy is that you've got, despite your circumstance, we want imparted to us. So this is the uh, Philippian series that we're in. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Let's read. Therefore, my beloved, again, he loves this church. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without crumbling, crumbling, yeah, without crumbling either. Uh, do, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. He's not mincing any words. Among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be, poor, may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Again, Paul is operating out of a ton of joy. And he hits a lot of dense things. I, today, we're, we're going to hit some of those things. We're going to go Bible study style. We're going to hit a few of these words that he's talking about. But then there's this overarching thing at the end that I want to come back to, uh, this sort of like aftertaste, this thing that is flavoring this whole passage that I want to talk about. But in the beginning, he says, he, he gets very, uh, he, he talks about the, the gospel, and he gets very heady about it. And he says, um, work out your own salvation. What he's not saying is work for your own salvation. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is very deliberate with his words in this. Paul knows there are moments, and we've talked about this in this church, there are moments of salvation that happen, right? Uh, where you realize that you need Jesus. You realize your life is a mess and you go, I need Jesus. And you pray, and the Bible says that if, uh, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I reverse those, I'm so sorry, Bible nerds out there, um, that, that you will be saved. So it's simple. That, that act of salvation is simple. But the life of salvation is another thing. That is the first step in a long life of trying to follow Jesus. And Paul is saying, work out your own salvation, the salvation that you already have because you gave your life to Jesus. That moment happened. You gave your life to Jesus. You're with him. You don't need to earn standing with him. Jesus earned that standing for you. But he said, work it out with God. Work out that salvation, that salvation that you've already been given. I love, um, <clears throat> there's a speaker, and I can't remember who it was now. I think it may have been Levi Lusco that said this. But he said, you know, it would be silly for us to believe that in baptism, 
when we get baptized and we get, like, we raise out of the water, that as soon as we get out of the water, we get physically really healthy. He's like, it would be silly to imagine we get baptized and we come up and we've got, like, six-pack abs and we've got, like, just ripped muscles. Like, we're very in shape. He said, why do we think then in baptism that afterward we're emotionally and spiritually strong too? We're not. We need to work that out in our life. The difficulty of our season is that um, things are pretty comfortable. Um, and I know and that doesn't, doesn't mean that the circumstances of your life don't carry a lot of weight and maybe you're going through something. Absolutely. Uh, that's very difficult. But in general, in the last couple of generations, we've enjoyed a physical comfort unlike any other generation has experienced. The problem with that is that we get placated into thinking like, oh, this is just life, right? We, this is just how it always is. And Paul is saying, despite what's going on, you have to work out your salvation. You have to actually work it out. You have to put yourself in a place where you need faith. You will not grow in faith unless you put yourself in a situation where you need faith, right? It's a great idea to think about like, oh, man, I think I have great faith. Well, who knows until it's put to the test, right? Who knows until you're actually put through something that's difficult? And Paul is saying, you know, throughout this whole book, he's like, I welcome those moments. He welcomes those moments where he's in prison. He welcomes those moments where he's weak because he goes, when I'm weak, then God is strong. This last couple of weeks, uh, I've been working on the Image Conference, and I've been talking to different leaders in the Valley, and I went to go um, tour a mental health facility that's right down the road, and and me and Arthur on our team, we went to this mental health facility. And I was on the phone with the leader, and he said, hey, make sure and bring your bathing suit. And I said, why? <laughs> um, to, to a mental health facility? Seems a little sketchy. Um, I said, okay, why? And he said, well, we have a cold plunge there we would love for you to do. And um, I said, okay. I said, how, how uh, cold is this cold plunge? I'm like, it's like 50 degrees, you know? He said, it's uh, 36 degrees. And... Uh, he said, we, we put you in there for three minutes. He's like, really, you got you to gotta be in there for three minutes. And I said, okay. I said, is it hard? He said, oh, it's very hard. <laughs> and uh, he said basically this. He said, first 30 seconds, he said, you get in there and your body is like, you got to get out of here. He said, your mind just starts reeling and your body just wants to leave the, the, the tank. And you have to force yourself to just stay there. He's like, just, you're just going to breathe easy. You're going to get into it. He's like, and then after that first 30 seconds, then you kind of start to get used to it a little bit more. And I'm like, okay, so then does it get easier? He said, no, that's really when your body starts to hurt. That's when it starts to like get painful. <laughs> and, um, and he said, you know, then you just really have to focus to get through the next two and a half minutes, you know. And we did it. Me and Arthur did it. And we made it all three minutes, by the way. Um, Yep, good. I was fishing for a little bit of acc accolades there. Um, it was not easy. I mean, and Arthur, if you know Arthur, Arthur's amazing. But he, he does, like, mixed martial arts. Like, Arthur is like an MMA guy. And he did the cold plunge, and he was like, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. <laughs> I was like, if you're saying that, Arthur, this is really hard. And it was. It was so hard. And 30 seconds into it, you're like, this is cold. The only thing I can really compare it to is, have you ever gone to a party that's got, like, drinks in a big cooler with ice, and you're fishing around for that drink, right? So you're fishing around, and you pull out a drink, and you're like, no, I don't want that, and you put it back, and you fish out another drink, you're like, I don't want that. Maybe I'm just super picky. And then you the, go in for like the third time, and all of a sudden, your hand starts to hurt, right? You're like, ah, this is hurting. I got to thaw my hand out. 
it's like that except your whole body. Your whole body is just like shaking and in pain. And, um, and before we went in, I told him, I was like, okay, I, I understand this is really hard. Why should I do it? <laughs> like the, it begs the question, like, why on earth would I put myself through that? And he said, well, when you put your body under physical stress, um, he said it affects the same part as, of your brain as the mental stress uh, part of your brain. And he said, and you really, like, you exercise that part of your brain. And he said, a lot of guys that are, like, CEOs, you know, like, super stressful uh, jobs, guys that, like, you know, are the super type A kind of guys, he said, they'll cold plunge every morning. And I was like, good heavens. After I did it, I was like, every morning? He said, yeah, they basically do that in the morning, and then they get out, and they go, I just did the hardest thing I'm going to do all day. And the rest of their day seems a lot easier. Um, he said, so as you work that part out, then you start to find yourself emotionally a lot stronger because you're building resilience. You're putting your body through something that's really hard, and you start to build resilience. He said, the other thing is, is it increases, it increases endorphins in your body, um, and it, it causes you uh, to, to really have a lot more joy and contentedness. He said, for a lot of people whose like, emotions maybe are stunted, it helps you kind of renew your emotions. And the more he was explaining, the more I was like, yeah, I want all that stuff, you know, like all that sounds great. And it was worth it because I knew it was on the other side, you know. And we are created to go through hard things. We really are. We are built to go through adversity and come out the other side stronger. This is, there's a book called Anti-Fragile, um, not a Christian book, but they just, the, the author talks about that. Like we are built to go through hard things and then come out the other side more resilient, stronger than when we went in. The problem is, is when we're so comfortable and the hard thing comes and we go, I can't handle it. This is way too much, you know, because we haven't conditioned ourselves enough with that. Now, I'm not saying that you, you know, like torture yourself. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is what Paul, Paul is talking about working out your faith. He's going, you have to look for moments where you can make yourself uncomfortable for the kingdom's sake. Maybe it's praying for somebody. Maybe it's generosity. Maybe it's whatever it is, putting yourself in a place where you're going, God, I need you to come through. I need you to come through. So Paul's saying, work out your own salvation. Then he said, with fear and trembling. Um, now, it's real popular right now to talk about God and to say there is no fear in God. And I, I get that. Like in the sense that like we are not called to be afraid. We're not called to be afraid of the world. We're not called to be afraid of the news which is hitting, hitting home for some of you right now in the room, uh, myself included. Um, we're not called to be afraid about things that are going on. That is not the fear of the Lord. That's being afraid. That's, it's different. The fear of the Lord, what the Bible says is the beginning of wisdom, is the understanding of us in contest and contrast against God. Because, yes, we were made in God's image, but God is huge. He is scary big. Like, I think if he spoke, I mean, we're all comfortable right now. I mean, it's like, well, it's maybe a little chilly in the room, right? Some of you cold. I run hot, so I feel like this is great. Um, we're sitting, we're comfortable. We've got this beautiful room. You guys are probably getting hungry for lunch. That's fine. Um, and yet, if the Lord spoke, it would get our attention. If he, if like, like if he physically came down and said, I have something to tell you, we would all be on our knees. 
there would be a moment where it'd be like, okay, this all, none of the things I was worried about make sense anymore. This is an awe-inspiring feeling when I, when I interact with the Lord. It's a feeling I feel when I'm at uh, the Grand Canyon. I've, I, I've been there a few times. In 2020, when we couldn't really do much of anything, we took the kids to the Grand Canyon twice because we're like, why not? It's an outdoor thing. and We could just go there, you know. And, um, but the Grand Canyon's scary, especially if you have kids. You're like, everyone back, you know. Even, there, even if there's like a super safe, you know, like thing in front, uh, it's, it's not safe. <laughs> and we all know it. So we kind of go up to the front, we look over, and you just have that feeling that like, for me, my, I'm a little freaked out about heights. So it's like my, my heart just drops into my feet. And I go, I, I got a good glimpse of it, and now I'm going to back off, you know. I'm going to give that some space. The thing awe-inspiring about the Grand Canyon is not just the depth of it, but the width of it, right? Like you look across and you go, that looks like a painting, like, it's so far away, I can't even tell, like, I have no depth perception anymore. It's like, it seems like it goes on forever. This is the awe of the Lord. This is the understanding that when we're in the midst of whatever we're going through, to see the infinite nature of God. And, and Paul's going, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It's God who is working in us. When we're working out our salvation, when we're choosing, choosing to follow him, when we're trying to serve him the best that we can, uh, when we're, we're trying to figure out where God's leading us and we're going and we're trying to be as fearless as we can, yet in the midst of it, when we're putting forward all of our effort, the Lord meets us. He's good, right? And it's him that's working in us. It's him that's working in us. So Paul is reminding us of all that. With that in the background, he says, now let me tell you something very Practical. He says, do all things, not some things or most things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Those two words, grumbling, um, I've been, uh, I've, there's a commentary by a guy named William Barclay, and I would really recommend it if you're looking for a deeper dive into Philippians. Uh, he's got a great, uh, a great commentary on Philippians. Uh, but he said, basically, this grumbling, the murmuring in some translations, that first word is a callback to uh, the years of Moses, when Moses was leading and the people underneath him were no fun to lead. And they were grumbling and they were looking to overthrow him. They're like, Moses doesn't know what he's doing. Like, this is, this is what William Barclay says he's, he, uh, Paul is talking about. And he says this when he's trying to unpack that word. He said, it's the low, threatening discontented muttering of a mob who's, who distrust their leaders and are on the verge of uprising, which we've probably experienced a few times in the last few years. Um, this is like this sort of gossip train that like I'm gossiping against people, I'm talking bad about people. Uh, we talked about a couple of weeks ago for, for those of us that have seen, you know, church leaders and big churches that have gone through things and we think we're being helpful by getting online and like posting something about how terrible they are. We're, we're really not being helpful at all. <laughs> that is between them and the Lord. That's really between their leadership and the Lord, you know. And so we're, we're interjecting and we're, we're, we're doing a lot of things that we wouldn't say are gossip, but they're definitely gossip. And I've seen gossip turn into something that actually causes a lot of damage. Causes a lot of damage in relationships, friendships, uh, relationships gets people fired, like, this is serious. 
And Paul's going, do all things, not most things, but all things, paying your taxes, do all things without, crum- without grumbling. I keep saying crumbling. Grum- maybe I'm hungry for some sort of crumble pie or something. I don't know. Um, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That second word, disputing, is funny. He said, it's basically like frivolous argument. Have you ever been around that person that just wants to argue and they don't care what it is? Like, it's a really great sport for them. And they're like, oh, you, you know, you like salads? I hate salads. They're stupid, you know? Like, those people that just pick any subject and they just love to disagree. They love to argue. They love to, like, to, like, just throw it back in your face. And being around people like that is exhausting, right? Like, we're sitting there at the, you know, Thanksgiving dinner table and you're like, I hope I don't get so-and-so's attention with this thing, you know? You're, like, filtering everything that you say because you're like, I don't want to get into anything controversial, you know? That sort of living is exhausting. And Paul's saying, look, church, we have to be different. We can't be the place that just gossips, talks about all the things that everyone, you know, that we need to tell everybody but don't actually tell anybody. Uh, We need to be people that are not frivolous in our argument. And we, we talked about this a lot in 2020, Living Streams. We were really careful to interject ourselves into things that we were going, do we need to talk about this or do we not need to talk about this? Because there are very consequential things going on in the world, no doubt. But we're constantly going, okay, Lord, what do you want us to say? Let's be discerning on what we're saying. Uh, the world, I think, would be a lot more peaceful if people just paused a little bit before they spoke. Um, so no, no grumbling, no murmuring, uh, no frivolous disputing. He said, so that you may shine like lights amongst a crooked and twisted generation. One of the commentaries I was reading said, this really seems like it's a callback for, for Paul. Because again, remember, Paul was a Jewish leader before this, when he was Saul, uh, before he was renamed by the Lord to Paul. Uh, Saul was a Jewish leader who really knew the Old Testament inside and out. He knew it. And they said this language that he uses really does seem to harken back to Daniel chapter 12. Now, Daniel chapter 12 really talks about the end times. It is the last chapter in the book of Daniel. Uh, It's very apocalyptic. Um, It's very much like, hey, in the end days, things are going to get really dark. And for the wise, they will shine like stars. They're going to shine. Their light is going to shine out. And this commentary said, Paul is talking about this, like giving them this sort of filter to say, hey, when everything makes sense at the end of days, you're going to shine like stars because what you did now. And this is the thing that really got my attention this week. Because later on, Paul says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Paul, in almost every epistle, talks about the end times. He talks about the day of Christ, Christ's return. He talks about it all the time. Book of Thessalonians, both one and two, is talking a lot about end times. And in 2 Thessalonians, I think it's really funny because Paul says, remember, he's talking about the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist that's on the earth. And he said, remember, we talked about all this stuff before. The funny thing is, is that Paul was only in Thessalonica for like three weeks when you read the book of Acts. You realize he was in and out of Thessalonica. So he came in, told them about Jesus, and then like a week later, I guess, started talking about end times theology. <laughs> For us, it's kind of like last on the discipleship list. Like, oh, you know, Revelation's kind of weird. We'll get to that later. Not with Paul. Paul's like, let's dive into the end times. And there's something about this. I feel like 
you know, we've, we've seen people talk about end times theology and do it in a very unhealthy way. People that set dates and they're like, this date, everything's changing. And then the date comes and goes and you go, what happened, you know? Um, there, there's a lot of that going on. But I will say, just because that happens, we should not throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something about end times that are very important. Paul talks about it a lot. And when you look at this passage, Paul's being very practical. He's like, don't complain, don't, you know, gossip, don't dispute. But in the background, he's casting vision for the future. And he's going, remember, there will be a moment when all of this will make sense and it will be set right. He's not the only one casting vision for the future. I was going over some, uh, some stats this week. And um, no shame in these stats. Like, I'm just saying this. Like, I'm in this struggle with you guys, just so you know. But the average person spends three hours and 43 minutes on their cell phone. The average person. Some of you are like, that's a good day for me. That's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Um, the average person spends three hours, 43 minutes a day on their phone. That equates to about 26 hours a week. Uh, that's more than 114 hours a month. Uh, that's 1,400 hours a year. And over the average lifespan, uh, if you start looking at your phone like that when you're in junior high, which sadly is kind of the starting point in our culture currently, you will spend an average of 10 years at the end of your life looking at your cell phone. It's 10 years. I was looking at that going, 10 years? That's, that's a long time. That does not include Netflix. That does not include laptops or anything else. That's just cell phones. And I think the mistake we make is that we're just kind of killing time. No, we're not killing time. We, we really are actively engaging with something that is trying to change us and speak to us. Um, the other day, we were having dinner, and I was hanging out with the kids, and I was feeling very much like this. I was feeling a little bit fiery, going, man, we've got, to, we've got to shift something here. And I was talking to my kids a little bit about cell phones and what it does to you. And I mean, just as a side note, there is a ton of data that shows if you take a Sabbath from your cell phone, 24 hours with no phone, which so some of you is giving you heart palpitations, 24 hours, no phone, turn it off, you actually gain a ton of mental health benefits. Like, anxiety goes down a ton. It's almost as if it's a spiritual principle to take 24 hours off in a week. Um, it really is. It's a, it's a Sabbath. We're called to do that. So I was talking to kids about cell phones and stuff like this. Now, this is kind of anecdotal, but um, I said, uh, as a little exercise, I said, okay, kids, what was the sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? And they said, they ate fruit. And I said, okay, they ate fruit from what? And they were thinking, they're like, from the tree of good and evil. And I said, really close, super close. I said, from the what of good and evil. And they're thinking, and they're like, oh, the knowledge of good and evil. I said, that's right, the knowledge of good and evil. And I said, again, this is anecdotal. I said, what does the logo on the back of my phone look like? And they were like, looks like fruit with a bite out of it. They were like, oh. There is, and I get it, there is knowledge in this. Like, if I don't know the answer to something, I could go, who was that, you know, the quarterback of that team in 1987? I could figure that out right now. Um, 
we have a ton of information, um, but we don't have a ton of attention. And we're giving our attention to something. And I think on the lowest end, we're wasting our time. You know, we're wasting our time on it or we're whatever. Uh, on, on the worst end of the spectrum, we're actually discipling ourselves in something different. Because this is not agnostic. This is not neutral. It's trying to teach you something. It's trying to teach me something. And the deeper you dive into it, the more you go, I don't, I don't trust the, the voices that are being very loud on this device. There's a guy named um, Yuval Harari. Uh, he's a New York Times best-selling author. Uh, he's a very influential guy. He's sold over 23 million copies of his latest book, Sapiens. Um, he has a PhD from Oxford. He writes for the New York Times, The Guardian, Time Magazine, et cetera, et cetera. He writes for all the major newspapers. Uh, he's a major speaker at the World Economic Forum. He's actually very influential with them. Uh, he's endorsed by Barack Obama and Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg. Everybody talks about this guy as if he is a, like, prodigious sort of mind in our time. Like, somebody who's just re really a monster of, of intellect. I started diving into what he had to say, and um, it was a little concerning. Uh, the, the cover of his website, when you go to his, his main website, is this. You know, like, people put a quote on there that's like, this is, if I, if I were to tell you one thing, here's the main quote that really sums up my life. Uh, on his website, it says this. History began when humans invented gods and will end when humans become gods. He said... When we integrate technology into our life, we will basically become like gods, using all sorts of different technology. We're going to have endless knowledge. We're not going to die. He's, he's casting all this vision for this is what it looks like in the next season. He goes into some things that I was like, I, I was like, did he really say that? I had to really, I had to watch the interview with this guy to go, did he actually say that? Uh, when he was talking about the future when it comes to community, this is what he had to say. He said, the family and intimate community will one day break. It will collapse. And most of the roles fulfilled by the family and community will quickly be replaced by the networks provided by the state. You won't need children. You just need a pension fund. You don't need anyone to take care of you. You won't need neighbors or sisters or brothers to take care of you when you're sick. The state will take care of you. And then... As they were talking in the interview, somebody was asking him, what, what do you see coming as, like, machines and AI is starting to take more and more jobs? Like, the working class, as their jobs get taken over by computers and machines, what do you see happening? And he said this, the problem is more boredom and what to do with them, and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless, my best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games. It's already happening. You see people solving their problems. Wow, he's using that word solving fast and loose. You, you see people solving their problems using drugs and computer games, both legal and illegal drugs. I read this and I thought, well, this is a vision for the future. <laughs> This is a little different vision for the future. And somehow I doubt that Yuval Harari will be on drugs and video games. I think he sees himself in a different place in that scenario. But you hear these voices, and 
more than anything this morning, what I want to say is we have to stop listening to a lot of these voices. This is not very sugar-coated, but every other voice makes it sound really palatable and, and interesting. But the philosophy of humanistic and atheistic uh, belief eventually leads here. It eventually leads to a place where people look around and go, hey, you're worthless and you're meaningless. I don't know what to do with you. Maybe I could just keep you busy doing something, distract you. The fact that he says solve their problems with drugs and video games is insane to me. But this is the vision for the future that these thinkers are putting forward. And church, we have to be different. And this is the good news. The good news is, is it's easy to contrast that with something better, right? <laughs> like you see that and you go, wow, is that really what you think of me? That I'm worthless and I'm meaningless? Because God says that he knit me together in my mother's womb. Said that he cannot count the beautiful thoughts he has toward me. I'm created in the image of God. I have purpose. I have something to do on this earth, and it's not drugs and video games. It's impacting the kingdom of God. And this is what Paul is talking about. Paul's going, look, you cannot look at the circumstances of your life without looking at eternity, without casting your vision forward. This is what the Bible says is, is coming. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, John says this. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. A new heaven and a new earth. And as we were talking about this idea just a little bit in our uh, elder meeting this last week, uh, one of our elders, Daniel Riccio, just an awesome guy, he was, he was saying, you know, you can't just look at your circumstances right now and then look at eternity and just go, I'm just going to hunker down and wait, wait till the end, you know. Our, our calling is not that. Our calling is to borrow hope from the future and pull it into now. Our calling is to borrow hope from this beautiful end that we see and we know we're all going to see and it's all going to make sense and one day every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. Like I said, in that moment when Jesus comes back, everyone will fall on their knees. It will all make sense and you won't be worried about your 401k. You won't be worried about the things that keep you up at night and it's all going to make sense and our job is to borrow hope from eternity for now. For now. I wrote it this way. I said, we must borrow strength from eternity to live a life of non-anxious purpose for the present. There's something calming about knowing I'm not in control. There's something calming about knowing that the systems of the world, though they are dark and unjust and evil, God is greater. And he's going to undo all of those injustices. 
But we need this for us, right? We need this for now. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be talking about it. John Eldridge said this, and I, I love this. And actually, if you wouldn't mind, maybe just close your eyes where you're at. I, I really needed to hear this quote this week. Let's all take a deep breath. John Eldridge said this. He said, if we will listen with kindness and compassion to our own souls, we will hear the echoes of a hope so precious we can barely put words to it. A wild hope we can hardly bear to embrace. God put it there. He also breathed the corresponding promise into the earth. It is the whisper that keeps coming to us in moments of golden goodness. He has planted eternity in the hearts of man. The secret to your unhappiness and the answer to the agony of the earth are one and the same. We are longing for the kingdom of God. We are aching for the restoration of all things. This is the only hope strong enough, brilliant enough, glorious enough to overcome the heartache of this world. Jesus, we need you. We don't say that because it's a, a nice phrase. We, we mean it. We need you. For every breath in our lungs, for every minute of the day, we need you. I pray that you'd give us a glimpse of eternity, that we could borrow hope for it, for right now, for whatever it is we're going through. Just take a moment between you and the Lord in prayer and just posture your heart to listen to him. We're gonna take communion together in a second. We're gonna come around the cross and be unified around that. But just take a deep breath in the presence of God and listen. Listen.